Today's sermon text is Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day, men. It is uh, good to be with you today. Um, We're going to be covering verses 7 through 11 that Tanya just read. Um, This is part two of a message that was begun last week. And so if you did not hear last week's message, I implore you to listen to it. Um, I really think you need to listen to it. It was um, a a lot of uncommon feedback. Um, I have some very... Uh, from people like in my family, some folks in my community group that I see quite often who often encourage me and tell me that um, uh, I think whether or not the sermon was good, that it was really good. But uh, last week, uh, I got a lot of uncommon feedback from folks who felt very uh, deeply stirred by the Spirit. And so please go back and listen to that. Please, please. Um, uh, I want you to experience the truth that is so beautiful and so rich. Um, in my opinion, in my opinion, what verses 7 through 11 that we're going to teach through today addresses is the single greatest deficit in Christian thinking and practice in our world today. As a matter of fact, I believe that one of the reasons why there are so many church people who walk around with a malaise in their eyes Um, a lack of vision and passion for God is because of what this text addresses. I cannot encourage you more strongly to please lean into this with me today and join me in chasing after truth and not only chasing after truth, but surrendering to it and allowing truth to apprehend us. I beg you, come with me today. Um, I want to read through this text one more time. I think it's really appropriate to do that. Um, It's the best part of the sermon that you're going to hear anyway. So um, again, but I want to focus on two particular movements in this text. Two particular things. Now, a lot of stuff is happening here. But I want to focus on two things to begin this message that will frame where we're going today. So verse 7, But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in this text, Paul is not saying that the sinful life that I used to lead, I count as loss for Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, is that everything that I thought made me fit for God, I have counted as loss for him. My Jewish ethnicity... I thought made me special in God's eyes. I've counted that loss. The tradition of my forefathers 
practices, traditions, worship practices, all those things that I thought set me apart as special and unique, practices that I have mastered in my life that I thought made me special to God, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Pursuing God with a full heart and giving him everything that I have and living a righteous lifestyle, I have counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. He's saying, I've repented of the good things in my life. Because as we talked about last week, for a lot of people, for a lot of us, Sometimes the best way to avoid Jesus is to be good. Sometimes the best way to avoid Jesus is to be good. Because if I'm good, I don't need him. And Jesus may not interfere in my life. Sometimes being good gets in the way of God. Indeed, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I love what he says there. And be found in him. Terminology that I rarely hear and even use myself in the church, that I may be found in Jesus, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming, becoming, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's a couple of ideas I want to pitch at you again. I mentioned a moment ago. The first one is this, justification. Justification. I know, theological word, kind of boring. Justification. Justification is the once for all declaration from God over any person who believes in Jesus that that person is righteous and acceptable to me for eternity. Justification. I declare that person fit for my kingdom not because of his or her good deeds, but because of faith. And because of that person's faith in Jesus, Jesus' works have become his or her works. That person is justified. That is a positional status before God. It is a once-for-all declaration. It is almost, almost entirely passive. God does it. He declared it. We receive it. It's who we are. You may not believe that about yourself at times. There are times I certainly don't. There are times that I feel shame and guilt and fear that Ron mentioned a moment ago that I'm reminded through the scriptures or through a preacher or through a brother or a sister who encourages me, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am justified. Paul talks about that here. When he says that I may be found in Christ, that's part of what he means, but not everything here. There's a second thing here. And that's called sanctification. 
I know, another theological word. Bear with me. Sanctification. Where am I getting that from? That's not said in this text. It's implied strongly. When Paul says that he would be becoming something, becoming like Jesus in his death, he is talking about an ongoing process in which the Holy Spirit of God has entered a believer's life and is curating that person's heart and behavior so that that person, like Ron said again, thinks, feels, and acts like Jesus. That's sanctification. Sanctification. That's what it means to be found in Him. Found in Him. Depending on Him. We never, ever graduate from neediness. We become one with Him. And as we become more and more and more one with Him, there's this desire inside of us that emerges that whoever Jesus is, whatever Jesus is, I want it. And that's why Paul could say, as he identified so deeply with Jesus, that I just don't crave his resurrection and his power. I also crave his death. I want it. What? I want his death. I want his death. That always is an intense verse to me. It used to be one of my favorite verses as a kid, as a young man. And then it became one of those verses that I wanted to stay away from because it scared me and frightened me. I don't want his death. But as I've begun to grasp this through meditation and study and just being in the faith and being a part of the church and being nurtured by the church, there's been a new desire that's grown in me for this type of thing in my life. I had an opportunity uh, about a couple of months ago to spend about five or six hours with one of my one of my uh, present-day heroes of the faith. His name's uh, Paul Miller, Paul E. Miller. He's a Christian author, theologian, and um, he's written several books, uh, some of my favorites, uh, A Praying Life. If you don't own A Praying Life, immediately go get that book. If you do not own A Loving Life, go get that book right now. Uh, well, after the service, uh, if, you've, if you don't own, uh, there's another one that he has, uh, The Praying Life, A Loving Life, and Love Walked Among Us. Whoa, these books are amazing. Get these books. Read these books. And the way that he writes his books is he writes short chapters and a lot of chapters. So you can take a month and read that book, like one snippet of that book per day, and just think and allow his insights to marinate in your heart. I encourage you to do that. But I was with Paul and a group of other pastors recently, and he was telling us a story about a girl named Sue that he knows. Sue. Um, I I don't know if he changed her name or not for uh, uh, privacy's sake, but there was this girl named Sue that he and his wife mentored. And this girl named Sue volunteered at a camp that was especially for children with special needs. It was a week-long camp, and she volunteered there every summer, and she loved it. It was hard work. It was almost 24-7 labor because you're with children who oftentimes can't make it without supervision, without someone helping them go through the basic movements and activities in, in any given day. And so she's with children all day long and there's this joy that she experiences in giving herself to this because she knows that she's bringing relief to parents 
who are under so much stress 24-7, 365 days a year. She loved this camp. But this one particular year that she was serving at this camp, she was accused by one of the mothers, and the mother went to the camp director and said, claimed that Sue had criticized her parenting skills. And this mother was not going to let it rest. She was going to have her vengeance. And it was such a dramatic experience that the camp uh, directors had to come to Sue, interview her, carry out interviews with witnesses. Sue claimed that she had, she had no recollection whatsoever of saying that, much less even being around this woman at the time. And after interviews, the camp counselors did what they could. They tried to handle this situation the best that they could, but they couldn't get any resolution. And so basically, the, the rest of the week of that camp Sue was going to have to have special oversight over her. She was going to have to face scrutiny that made her feel bad and bitter and dark. And she was, she was uh, slandered. She felt slandered by this person. Paul and his wife were uh, mentors to her. She goes to them in tears, completely broken, completely broken. Paul said, there's no way I believe that she would say something that cavalier and that reckless. There's no way I believe that. But this was the accusation. And so they began to take her through a process of discipleship in helping her to see where she was and what God was doing in her life. I've got a diagram to show you that Paul showed us. In this, uh, this first diagram, it shows what Sue's life was like before slander. Sue had to pay money, her own money, and give of her own time to serve at this camp. In return, Sue was going to receive the blessing of simply ministering to people that is so enjoyable, encouragement from her peers, and thanks from parents whom she is serving. That was the currency of that camp. I'm paying, I'm giving my time, I'm taking a week out of my summer vacation to serve at this camp. And what I get in return is going to make this awesome. Awesome. But this is what Sue's life looked like after slander. Instead of receiving blessing and thanks for what she did in giving her money and her time, she received shame, slander, and drama. And what Paul and his wife were trying to help her to see is that maybe this is the first time in your Christian life, Sue, that you're beginning to see what it looks like to not only crave Jesus' resurrection power, but to be faced for the first time with loving his death. Because the only way you can really crave his resurrection, we can sing about it on Easter, the only way you can really want his resurrection is if you are willing to embrace his death in your life. I want each of you, as this message goes on, I want you to think about the death in your life right now. Just take a minute and think about it. Don't say it out. I don't want to hear about it. 
I don't want this to be a dramatic and emotive experience, a manipulative experience. I want you to think where you are in your little world, what is the death that's in your life right now? Is it a broken relationship? Is it an an elusive um, job, an unhappy career? What is it? Just think about it. Don't say it, just think about it. If you're taking notes, maybe scribble it really small so the person sitting beside you can't see it. But just write it down. Name it. Put it on your paper. Put it in that notes app on your phone. What is that death that you are carrying around right now? Because the point of today's message is not to teach you how to have a good attitude about death. The point of today's message is to remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1a. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. The death in your life is not just an opportunity to grow in Jesus. That's not what that is. That cheapens it. The death in your life is an opportunity to learn how to rejoice in Jesus. Because the fact is that a lot of us only know how to rejoice in Jesus when our life looks like that first diagram. Most of us have no idea how to rejoice in Jesus when our life looks like that second diagram. We have no idea. Now, that works when you're growing up in church. When you're not aware of how evil this world is and how painful this world is, it's one thing to say, man, my favorite verse, man, the power of resurrection, fellowship of sufferings, be conformed to his death. You know, I love that verse. It's so awesome. It sounds powerful, intense, cool. But it's not until we get older that we begin to feel the rub of life, that we begin to withdraw from God. I don't feel victorious. I don't know what resurrection power feels like. What is that? You know how many people go to church on Easter Sunday and leave like, what was that all about? I don't know what that feels like. What does that feel like? And so here's our option. This is Sue's option. And these are our options. You've got two general responses to death in your life. Here's the first one. I'm just going to use Sue as an example. The first one is this. You can allow your pain and your suffering to own you. This is common in the church. It can own you. This is totally passive. It's something that happens to you because your soul drifts in this direction. Your soul doesn't drift the other direction. It drifts in this direction. Here's option one. This is what it looks like to be owned by your suffering. I'll never go back to that camp again. We withdraw. That's the thanks that I get for sacrificing my time for those people. We become cynical. You know how many wonderful Christian altruists have had the flame of their passion stomped out by suffering? Not because they're not legit or or illegit Christians. I'm not saying that. It's because we've not taught people how to manage suffering in their lives. What God is saying to them through their suffering in their lives. 
We completely ignore vast texts of Scripture because it doesn't make Sunday morning crowds happy. Here's another effect of it. We become darkened in our souls. That's really the only word I could think of. I know that's sort of subjective, but we become darkened. This, I don't care anymore. Serving others is pointless. Look at the good it did. I pour my life out, and this is the thanks that I get. What's the point? That is a dangerous place. Because I've seen a lot of people go from there to a life of hedonism. Because that ruined and exposed their naivete, and all of a sudden they started thinking about this whole Christian faith thing, and they're like, you know what, forget it. What's the point? The church is bogus. And we start making all these sweeping judgments about the Christian faith and about God. And we enter into a life of hedonism because at the end of the day, what our target was, was to feel thanked, to feel blessed, to feel happy. And because that camp could not provide that for me, or that marriage could not provide that for me, or that church could not provide that for me, or that community group could not provide that for me, or that job could not provide that for me, or whatever could not provide that for me, we withdraw not just from serving there, but from the whole faith. We've not been properly taught on this. We've been darkened. Some of us, we rage. We lash out at our offenders. Some of us gossip. I love what Paul Miller, how he defines gossip. He says, gossip is the creation of an alternate community of empathizers. I wasn't vindicated by my camp counselors, by the directors, certainly by that mother. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to pour my bitterness and rage into other people so that they will champion my cause and give me a sense of vindication. That's what gossip does. Hate them as much as I do. Resent them as much as I do. Share my story. Be with me in my suffering. Be with me. We give in to bitterness It's bitterness is, as Paul Miller says, it's it's anger that's stuffed down, but we can't help it that it's going to leak. It's this vibe that we give, this air of just ugliness and darkness and sharpness that follows us around. It's bitterness that's been stuffed down. My friends, when you seek to advance the cause of Jesus much less when you seek to do good, you are walking headlong into a world of spiritual warfare. You are walking into the same world that brought Jesus death. And death pulls the covers back, exposing our naivete... So there must be a deeper motivation than merely having an altruistic heart. Than merely just wanting to serve people. Those are noble, noble desires. But there's got to be an engine deeper inside of us that motivates us. It's got to be. And we've been singing about it and praying about it all day. It must be a desire to see the face of God. Huh? Face of God. How does that work? We'll go there.
Here's option two. Option two is to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. The word fellowship means to share in. It means to take his sufferings upon me and make them mine. It is an active participation in the death of Jesus. It's an active participation. But there's a problem. We have not been properly taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been taught a gospel that is distant from us. We've been taught a gospel that we don't have to participate in, that we pray a prayer to get into. We've been taught a gospel that once you're in, the Spirit should just carry you the rest of the way with no effort from you at all. That's the gospel we've been taught. We've been taught a gospel that is, quote, for me. And yes, it is for you, but that's not where the sentence ends. We've been taught a gospel that's for me, but has separated us from the work and the life and the vision and the call of love. Love. In Philippians 1.29, listen to this verse and let this, man, I don't even know how to describe it, be a heavy weight on your heart as it's been on mine. Paul says, to ordinary Christians, and that would put us here too. So when he says you, put you there. He says this in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you, would you say me? Yeah, not you, but say me, but think you. You know what I mean. So it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. You know what that word granted is? In the Greek, the word is charis. Gift. Gift. That's what charis means. It's usually relegated to the gifts of the Spirit. We often overlook all the other ways the Bible says that God gives gifts to us. There is a gift of suffering that God the Father gives to us. What? I don't think I like this message, Pastor Chris. I can hear Jim Gaffigan saying that in my head right now. Um, So Paul is saying that suffering has been granted to you, to me, for the sake of Jesus. He's saying that suffering is part of the work of grace in each of our lives. Becoming like him even in his death. He's saying that we receive first the gospel, we believe it, right? 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 Yes, we believe the gospel. We believe the gospel. And then God graces us with suffering so that we become the gospel. We become the gospel. Oh, man. I do not say this flippantly, friends. This is, uh, God's just been sort of like mashing this into my soul gently and firmly at the, in the same, same time, just in his wonderful fatherly way. Man, 
This is an active participation in the gospel. This is not automatic. This doesn't automatically happen to you. Option two doesn't automatically happen to you. This is why there are a lot of believers walking around with a malaise on their face. It just doesn't happen. You participate in this. We are called into the fellowship of his sufferings to take his sufferings upon me. And I want to be clear about something. We don't go looking for suffering. Suffering will come. Anybody in here carrying death around today? Keep your hand in the air. If you're not, that's okay. If things are good right now, awesome. I don't want you to suffer. I don't think God does either necessarily. Keep your hand in the air. Who's carrying around death today? Did reading your Bible keep that away? No. And not reading your Bible didn't bring it on. We live in a broken world full of death and suffering and decay and corruption. We live in this world. So you can put your head in the sand and act like what I'm saying is crazy or you can just submit to Jesus. That is not going to make suffering go away from you. Acting like it's not there. Confessing it away. It's part of this life in this world. This is why Romans 8 tells us that we long for a new world, a new kingdom of God to come and bring about the new creation. We long for that. We're not in the new creation yet. We're in the old creation. And the old creation is full of suffering. It's full of suffering. So what do you do about this reality? What do we do about it? If it's gifted to us, then we need to learn how to receive it. And that brings up the next question. How do I receive that? How do I see suffering as a gift? And what purpose does it have? What does it do in my life? If it's gifted to us, then we need to receive it. We need to take it from the Father even though we may initially recoil. And we will all initially recoil. I'm also not saying you shouldn't pray that suffering goes away. I'm not saying that either. Pray that your suffering goes away. But the most, most cases that I've seen, when people have prayed that their suffering goes away, it doesn't. So is God not good? Or is there another story deeper that we need to discover? What is God doing? What is he up to in our lives? Because God is good. He's good. What's the effect of looking at suffering as a way to see God's face? What is the effect of looking at suffering as a way to become like Jesus? What is the effect of that? What's the effect of it? Suffering, the first thing, is suffering no longer feels pointless. Why, oh why, oh why? And I'm not saying that even when you grasp this, you're going to stop saying why, because suffering hurts. Suffering hurts. Sometimes we're washed over with seasons of encouragement and hope, and other times our souls are washed over and, and, and dirtied with, with, uh, with fear and anxiety and and that's why we need each other. The writer of Hebrews told the Hebrews, he said, you need to be together every day so you can encourage one another. You need encouragement every day. I had a friend tell me one time, he says, I need you to encourage me every day. He said, you know why? I said, uh, why? 
He said, because the Bible says so. <laughs> I need encouragement every day. <laughs> the Bible says so. Sounds like my parenting. Because I said so. Because the Bible says so. Uh, take it up with God. So, suffering no longer feels pointless. Why does it no longer feel pointless? What do we learn? What can we see in the story of our suffering? The first is this perspective. Sue, for instance, will see that her suffering has been exalted because it is a gift from God the Father. When you look at your suffering as a gift from God the Father, all of a sudden your perspective changes. It's not any longer Satan's just kicking my butt. It's God is good, God is sovereign, and He has entrusted me with a gift that He's obviously given me the grace to endure. And He's not doing it for just because I'm a pawn and He's messing with me. It's because He's doing something deep in my life. Something deep. So your perspective changes. You're able to see your suffering as a gift from God and a path into more deeply knowing Jesus. More deeply knowing Jesus. Some of you, when you got married in here, you discovered that there was a dark story that your spouse was carrying around. I'm not saying that you were deceived. Maybe you were. I don't know. But when you married this person, you realized, whoa, there's more to her or more to him than what I thought. Some marriages don't survive this. Some marriages, though, the person sees that partner they're married to, the darkness that they're carrying around, and they love them anyway. I want everything you are. I will walk with you through this mess that you're in. We're going to go get counseling. We're going to get help if we have to. We're going to face this together. Anybody who's married has had that story happen in your life. Anybody. This isn't just for people with the, quote, big problems. Everybody who's married found out stuff about their spouse. They're like, man, I really don't like this about my spouse. And that it could be something minuscule and tiny and childish, but that thing can drive a wedge that over the years causes this dissonance in your relationship that, that for some people leads to divorce. It destroys the relationship. But when you marry someone, don't be naive. You are marrying them and their baggage. And when you say you love someone, you are loving them and their baggage. You don't like it that they struggle with that necessarily. You don't like it that that's part of their makeup necessarily. But you love them. We, as we grow in Jesus, if we don't begin to love and appreciate and embrace Jesus' death, I'm just not sure how we can honestly say we love Jesus if we're not willing to suffer with him. I know that's a strong statement, and I'll back that up in just a second. Sue's attitude changes over time. Instead of this woman, this accusing woman, being against her, and Sue seeing her as an enemy, as a foe, she sees this woman's treatment of her as the door to deeper fellowship with Jesus which in turn frees her to be kind to this woman. Does she need to exercise prudence? Of course. But it frees her to be kind to this woman. This isn't automatic. Please, don't, please understand what I'm saying here. This isn't automatic. 
This is cultivated. This is grabbed. If you don't believe this, this won't happen. Transformation happens in this girl's life. The gospel moves from being something that merely makes her feel good to being the very center of her life. The gospel becomes the center of her life. The Jesus who said, love your enemies, who said, turn the other cheek, probably the most rationalized verse in all of Scripture. The Jesus who said, pray for those who who, who, uh, persecute you. Love those who spitefully use you. The same Jesus who said that and then died to back it up, we become more like him. The gospel becomes the center of our lives, which is what we desperately need in the church, especially in our western southern world, man. Oh, my goodness. We are two different people, man, at times. We love our Jesus. We love our church services. We love our Bible studies. And we hate our enemies. We hate our enemies. We, no, sorry, sorry. We just, I love them, but I just dislike them. We can, what else can happen in our lives? We can receive this from the Father as a gift of love. The death that is in your life right now, you can receive from God as a gift of love from Him. You can receive it as a gift of love. You can move from being a victim to a victor in your life. If you receive suffering as a gift from God. And you have an opportunity. Make no mistake, this is not easy. You are going to feel death. You are going to continue to feel death in your life. But a resurrection is coming. And here's what you get out of this. That I may know him and share in his sufferings, which in turn does something marvelous and wonderful in our lives. It gives us a need for God. We need him. It cultivates inside of us a desire to see his face. This is what enemies can do to us. This is what God lovingly gives us. It will join you to Christ in ways that you have never experienced before. It joins you to him. What Paul is talking about in these verses, my friends, is the ordinary Christian life. He's not talking about apostles who are going to get persecuted in other countries, like the Middle East or something like that. He's talking about the ordinary Christian life. And yes, that suffering is a continuum. It could range from all-out martyrdom at the hands of an enemy who kills Jesus' followers all the way to being a person of integrity and character and kindness in the workplace. And you are mocked and scorned for that. Whatever death that you're carrying around is a gift from Him. It's a gift from Him. We don't go looking for suffering. 
We don't stop praying that suffering ceases. But suffering hangs around. And so we've got to ask why. And Paul answers this question here. Why? This is not automatic. This is cultivated. I keep saying that. This is cultivated. If you go back to Philippians 3, closing it out right here. Philippians 3 verse 1, Paul says these words. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. This is the guy who had people fall asleep when he was preaching and die when they fell out a window. I'm not saying Paul was a terrible preacher, but I don't think Paul gave in to the idea that every sermon has to be novel and sensational and, you know, um, amazing. He says, for me to repeat the same stuff to you over and over and over again is safe for you. Why? Because Paul's goal is not to get people hyped up. Paul's goal is to transform people. And that means meditating on God's word. That means camping out in God's word. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Because for any one of you, to, none of you are going to walk out of here today and say, you know what, from now on when I suffer, I'm going to see it as a gift from God. You will not. Your emotion, the strength of your emotion, you will not be able to overcome. Not now. This is why you need to sit in this, intake this, digest this, make this a part of your life. For example, um, there's a lot of people who feel a lot of guilt because they don't read through the Bible every year. Feel a lot of guilt for that. Most people have read the book of Genesis and Exodus about 300 times. And then every year when we, you know, say, I recommit ourselves, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, I'm going to get through it. As soon as we get to like Genesis 7, we're like, oh my gosh, I've read this 500 times, you know. Ah, oh. you know, then Leviticus happens and that's when it really goes down. Leviticus is the annual Bible reading killer, Leviticus is. Uh, then Numbers, if they had, that'll finish you off if you're still, if you survive Leviticus. Um, um, we feel a lot of guilt for that. But here's my question. Why, where do we get that assumption that we need to read through our Bible in a year? Why do we have to do that? I know so many people have read through their Bibles every year and we barely remember anything. Our, our hearts aren't being changed because we don't have time to sit and think on it because we've got to knock out those five or six chapters or that eight or nine if you're doing the McChain you know, reading plan. Um, it's, it's hard to maintain that. It's not realistic. Why not take five verses or ten verses or one chapter and sit on that and marinate in that for a week. What would that do to you if you actually meditated on God's Word and backed up and took the big picture approach and thought, you know what? I'm not going to read through my Bible this year. I may not get through it for ten years. But dadgummit, I am going to be, I'm going to get really, really good at love. I'm going to get really good, strong at learning how to die to myself, learning how to see my sufferings as a gift from God, 
rather than the fleeting satisfaction of, I can check off my Bible journal uh, reading plan today. That's just one example of how so many of us, we don't know how to grow in Jesus. We're trying to get through things. Our culture is screaming at us that bigger, better, volume, sexiness, all that stuff is what we're going for. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is small and hidden and you need to learn contentment. Take that word and sit on it and hide it in your heart and let it change you. Be freed from having to toe the line of all these assumptions that we have in Western evangelicalism and learn how to love God and be in God and so that one day your greatest aspiration will be that I may be found in Jesus. That I may be found in Him. Oh my God. It is my conviction that this is woefully taught in the church. And so many people are dropping like flies in Western Christianity because we don't know how to suffer. We, some of us think even suffering is not of God. When the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation are so clear that God's people have been entrusted with suffering and that God's grace is there. Don't get me wrong. I, I am not a glutton for punishment. I don't want it. But when it comes, and it will, Will you take option one, withdraw, get bitter, lash out, gossip, whatever it is that we do to try to cope with our pain? Or are we going to see it as an opportunity to gaze more deeply into the face of Jesus? God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I thank you that you love us passionately. And I thank you that you are so good to entrust us with the gift of suffering so that we would be separated from all of the other garbage and junk and distractions in our world so we can learn how to love you and see eternity and beauty that never ends. In Jesus' name, amen.